morning. We've got a good, good crowd here this morning. Congratulations are in order to our newly engaged couple, Esther, and I forgot your name. I do it every time. Esther's fiance. Philip, that's right. Yeah, so congratulations to Esther and Philip. Let's congratulate them. Yeah. She's like, who cares? Throw money, right? Throw money. We've got guests with us this morning. It's good to have visitors with us uh, always, and so we're, we're very glad that you're here. Um, we, uh, we've got a lot that's firing up now as we're kind of approaching summer. We've got the ladies' Bible study going. Matt's uh, Sunday evening thing is going. Uh, Vacation Bible School is on the horizon. I can't believe that Vacation Bible School is on the horizon. We do all of these things because God has given us a command. And God has expectations that we make disciples here in Dalhart and around the world. And so all of it, mission support financially, all of these different things are ways that God is using Liberty Baptist Church to glorify himself by making disciples. And so that's what we're doing here together this morning. Please take your Bibles and open them to not Exodus. We're going to get there in a minute. Luke chapter 24. I'm going to preach two sermons this morning. And you're like, oh, great. I mean, one takes long enough, but now two. I'm going to, I'm going to do, uh, it's really one sermon, I promise. It's really one sermon. But I want us to get, I want to get uh, some lenses for us to look through before we jump into our passage in Exodus this morning. In Luke chapter 24 is a, is a story that helps us understand all of the Bible and especially the Old Testament. In fact, I would say that as New Testament believers, as Christians, a clear understanding of Luke chapter 24, the verses that we're getting ready to look at, are, are some of the most important verses for us to understand in order for us to understand all of the Bible, and especially the Old Testament. Luke chapter 24, Jesus has already died, hung on the, or hung on the cross, died, been buried, and then raised from the tomb by the power of God. And in verse 13, it says, That very day, two of them, two of Christ's disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. Right? So these are followers of Jesus. So we don't know exactly who they were. And they're walking along. They're going to a town. This is how they traveled back then. So imagine you and a friend driving in a car somewhere. And you're just talking about everything. And these disciples are talking. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. He's walking along with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So somehow God kept these men who knew Jesus and were following Jesus. He kept their eyes from being able to perceive that that was Jesus. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? All right, so he's saying, where are you from, man? Do you not know what's going on around here? And Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, who was mighty in what he did and his deed and his words before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and to be crucified. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. 
Some of the women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they had a, seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just like the women had said, but they didn't see him. And Jesus now says to Cleopas and Cleopas's friend, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. To believe what? What does it say there at the end of verse 25? To believe what? All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, verse 27 is a verse that you need to have circled or highlighted in your Bible. For, for us as New Testament believers, this is, an, this is incredibly important for us to understand this verse. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them, the disciples, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Let me read that verse one more time. Beginning with Moses. What does that mean, beginning with Moses? It means Moses' writings. Right? If I said I read Shakespeare or I read Agatha Christie, you would know I, I didn't read the person. I read the books, the things that he wrote. I read the things that Agatha Christie wrote. And so he's saying, beginning with Moses or the things that Moses wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, right? Nahum, Micah, Habakkuk. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures. Jesus interpreted to Cleopas and his friend all the scriptures concerning, the things concerning Jesus himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going he acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. It's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. I mean, imagine the, the, what's going on here, the, the imagery of the, the broken body and blood of Christ. Verse 31, And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. I love verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? Now, in, in verse 25, it says that, that Jesus um, said that they were slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. And then in verse 27, Jesus talks about, um, he starts with, with Moses and all the prophets and explains to them the things about Jesus. And then verse 32 says that Jesus had opened to them the scriptures. And what scriptures, in all three of those instances, what scriptures did those pro disciples have? Just the Old Testament. And as they rose the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, they found the eleven and those who were with them and gathered to them, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So what am I doing? What am I trying to, what's the point that I'm making here? Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ himself does something and teaches something that's important for us as Christians to keep at the front of our minds when we are in the Old Testament. 
Jesus goes through the Old Testament. He's walking with his disciples and he said, friends, you haven't understood. You haven't understood clearly what was right there in the Old Testament, that it's all about whom? It's all about him. It's all about him. It's all about Jesus. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. And Jesus here, verse 27, is one of those key, I'm just telling you, you need to know Luke 24, 27, that needs to be like a John 3, 16 kind of passage for you. Let me give you several other verses, and I am going to ask you to flip around just a little bit because I want you, and if, you're, if you write notes or in your Bible or whatever, I have these, up, there's four more verses that I'm going to give you, and I have them written in the margin right next to Luke 24, verse 27. Look at Luke chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. So, and j- again, I'm teaching you, I'm, we're, we're having a Bible lesson before we get to the sermon this morning, okay? So I, I'm not preaching yet. I mean, I, I feel like I'm preaching, but you know what I mean. Luke chapter 4, look at verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll. Jesus has just re- read from the prophet of Isaiah. He's just read from the Old Testament. Jesus read from the book of Isaiah, and then verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture from Isaiah has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, I'm I'm here. What Isaiah was prophesying, who Isaiah prophesied would come, is here. I'm here. Mic drop. That's what's happening here. Jesus hands the scroll back, sits down and says, you're watching it happen, fellas. So Luke chapter 4, verses 20 and 21 is another set of scripture where Jesus is saying, I'm the one who fulfills the Old Testament stuff. You might want to write down John, and again, we're not to Exodus yet. John chapter 5, verse 39. These are worth looking at. I'm just telling you, you need to know these things. John chapter 5, verse 39 says this. You, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees here, you search the scriptures. What scriptures would they have had? Old Testament. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about whom? About me. Jesus is saying, Old Testament, bear witness of me. And then look in verse 46 of the same passage. For if you believed Moses or the writings of Moses, you would believe me for what? He wrote of me. So over and over throughout the New Testament, there's other passages, but I think these are four of the strongest and clearest passages in the New Testament where Jesus himself says, when you read the Old Testament, it's not just some book of really cool stories where a really wise king figures out the way I'm going to determine whose baby this is, is by cutting it in half. And then, no, it's not just a bunch of random stories. They are, they're all part of one big story of man being in trouble and needing a wise one to come and rescue them. These ladies were in trouble and, and a wise man rescues them from their trouble, pointing us ahead to the wise one who will come, who is perfect wisdom and rescue us from our trouble. And so as we look back into the book of Exodus, my, my desire, my prayer, my hope is that every single week that this will happen. Look again, if you're still in Luke chapter 20 or Luke 24, here's what I want 
to happen in your heart and in your mind every week. And listen, I can't do it by myself. There's two, two other people who have to contribute, who have to jump in on this with me. I, I can't make what I'm getting ready to, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 32 says this, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. Here's my desire. My desire is that when you come and we open God's word together on Sunday morning, one of my favorite hours of the week is when we gather here together with Bibles open on our laps. I love it. I hope that you don't have this hurry up. I can't wait for lunch. I can't wait for something else to happen this afternoon. But I hope that you, the youngest of you and the oldest of you and everyone in between shows up on Sunday morning, like kind of ready. Like, okay, like, God's here. His word is here. Jeremy's going to, you know, do his best. But like, so it's me and then you and then the Holy Spirit. And like the three of us are going to work together to see that this happens week after week after week, that our hearts would burn within us as we open the scriptures. And the way that our hearts will burn within us as we open the scriptures is when we see Christ in them. This is what Jesus did for those disciples. He went from Moses and throughout the Old Testament. You can just imagine, imagine what that must have sounded like, the teaching that that must have been, where Jesus goes through the Old Testament. Don't, don't you wish that was recorded, Jerry? I wish that was written down, recorded audibly somewhere where we could hear and see Jesus preaching the Old Testament about himself. So now, as we jump back into the book of Exodus, we need to look at the Old Testament always with those goggles on, with those lenses on. And as I'm reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Isaiah, Proverbs, Psalms, as I'm reading the Old Testament, I'm looking for Jesus because Jesus said, it's about me. Look for me in the Old Testament. And unfortunately, I lived a huge part of my Christian life not understanding that. I thought the Old Testament was just a lot of really cool God-sized story stuff that was somehow unrelated, mostly unrelated. Every now and then, maybe a psalm here and there kind of pointed, was messianic and pointed us toward Jesus. But I didn't realize that the entire book, the entire book from Genesis to Concordance, that's a joke. Genesis to Revelation is revealing Jesus. And the reason I know that for an absolute fact and you can't shake me from it is because Jesus himself said, yeah, the whole thing's about me. The Old Testament is about me. Okay, that's the end of sermon one. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter two. I was telling somebody earlier, I, I, uh, I was looking forward to preaching Exodus before I even started studying Exodus. And now that I'm in it, um, I'll just be honest with you right from the, from right now. I'm in no hurry to get through Exodus. I don't know how long it's going to take. The second half will almost certainly go much faster because it's a layout of all of the tabernacle, right? Um, all of the, 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 uh, the tabernacle dimensions and that sort of thing. Diadne and I were talking about that the other day. Um, and then it's repeated again. So chapters 21 and following will probably go a little more quickly. When we get to chapter 20 and we talk about the Ten Commandments, we will very likely take one commandment each week and talk about how God would have us be a people who are holy unto his name. What does holiness mean? What does holiness look like? Is it just a list of do's and don'ts? 
I think sometimes in our eagerness to hurry up and get away with the list of do's and don'ts, we've thrown away a lot of holiness that God would actually have us be and live and do in this world. Exodus chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 23, and we're going to read down through chapter 3, verse 9, and that will be our passage for this morning. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 says this, During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Isn't it, isn't it ironic? Uh, uh, verse 23, I just can't walk past this. During those many days, the king of Egypt, what? He died. Right? So here is the, the, the most powerful man on earth, and he's worried about the children of Israel gaining strength and having dominion over him. And he died. We don't even know his name. He died. And the people of Israel groaned out because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And what did God do? And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant. A word that is a close synonym for us is a promise. It's not an exact synonym, but a very close synonym for us would be God remembered his promise with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So look in verses 24 and 25. God heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, priest of Midian means that, jo- that Moses is living in a family who worships a different God, not the God of Israel. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, or Mount Sinai. It's another name for Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, but it wasn't consumed. It wasn't burning. And Moses said, what you and I would have said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Or probably in Hebrew, what in the world? Why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then God said, do not come near Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. What did Moses do? Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And again, I can't help but but mention this right now. We'll talk about it a lot more in weeks to come, but... He was afraid to look at God. What does later on Mount Sinai, on the same mountain, what does Moses ask of God? To see him. I just, I, we're going to talk about what's, what happens, what's the change. Here, he's afraid to look at God, but later he, he asks, can I see you? Uh, let's see, he was afraid to look at God. Verse 7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I, verse 8, is, is, the, is the, the, um, the, the highlight this morning. Verse 8 is, is where we're going to see the most beautiful gospel in this passage. 
And I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I also have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Father, as we look into your word together this morning, would you please, by your spirit, help us to see and feel and obey what we need to. May our hearts burn within us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The title this morning of the sermon is this, Come Down to Deliver. Come Down to Deliver. Look in verse 8, and I have come down to deliver. And the main point is this, God will deliver those who cry out to him for help. God, God will, God will come down to deliver those who cry out to him for help. And so first, let's see how God attends to Israel's cries. And then secondly, we'll see how God appears to Moses. And then lastly, we'll see how God announces his plan. So first, how God attends to Israel's cries. The people groaned and cried out and cried and groaned. Those are the words, literally the words that are used to describe how the people of Israel are are existing emotionally in this land that's governed by this yet another new Pharaoh, not only the one who had forgotten Joseph, but a new one even since him. And they cry out because they're slaves. They cry out because of the hardship of the taskmasters that they're living under. These are God's people. And the people who aren't God's people, the Egyptians, the people who aren't God's people are the ones who are powerfully triumphing right now. In fact, they're triumphing. The Egyptians are triumphing because of the enslavement of God's people. So you know how in a book or in a movie or in life, sometimes the bad guys are winning at the moment? I mean, this is years upon years upon years of the bad guys winning and of the the good guys losing. And it's happened for hundreds of years now. Moses, uh, uh, prior, prior, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but God had told Abraham that his people would be in, in Egypt for 400 years. They're not free to do what they want to do. They're not free to live the way they should live. They're not free to live the way that God wanted to, them to live. They are enslaved. And there isn't a thing they can do about it. Not a thing they can do about it. They're not strong enough to deliver themselves from Egypt. They're not, they, they don't have the power and the capacity to figure out a way to deliver themselves. They're enslaved, and they're crying, and they're groaning. Friends, do you ever look around at the world and think, God's people are the ones who are losing, and the people who don't love God and don't want to love God and don't want to follow God, it seems like they're the ones who are winning. You ever look around in the world and, and kind of just watch the evening news and think, it's backwards, right? The things that we should call good are being called bad, and the things that we should call bad are being called good. And like, we're losing. Or do you ever feel like, do you personally, not just the world we live in, but do you ever feel like, I, I'm, I, like I'm a slave to 
the wrong things. I don't have the freedom. I, I, I kind of want to do what's right, but I just don't ever, I, I just don't. I don't do what's right. Do you ever feel like a slave? Do you ever feel this way? And while you may show up on a Sunday and kind of look like you have your act together and you may even occasionally share a prayer request with someone, when you're alone and when you're all alone, you, you would say, yeah, you know, this whole crying and groaning thing, yeah, I, I relate to that. Well, these people are calling out and crying out to God, and their cry came up to God. Note that they're calling out to God for rescue. We're going to make some points of application to all this in a minute. They cried out, the the end of verse 23, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. They, They weren't kind of trying to figure out a grassroots movement within themselves to try to figure out who can be a leader for us, who can rescue us, who can save us. Let's post something on Facebook. Let's phone a friend. Let's figure out a way to, to, to rescue ourselves. And friends, there is something that we can learn about this. When you are crying and when you are, when you are groaning, to whom does your cry go out to? I think as Christians, sometimes we think that our cry goes out to God because we prayed once for five seconds about a thing. And then the rest of the time we're, like I said, on Facebook or phoning a friend. Our cry doesn't really go out to God. Our cry goes out to friends or lucky rabbit's foots or whatever. But here they're bringing God into the situation through their prayer. And God heard and he saw and he knew. I love verses 24 and 25. Again, I, I write in my Bible, I'm an underliner. I have God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew all underlined in my Bible. Here's a God who is actively aware. He's actively aware of what his people are going through. They were people, they were to be a people who dwelled in the promised land. God had already made a promise to Abraham. I'm going to bring you into this land of milk and honey. Genesis chapter 17, verse 8, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verse 8. But prior to that promise in Genesis chapter 17, all this is important, prior to that promise in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord said to Abram in verse 13, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's the part of the promise that God makes to Abraham that we kind of forget about. God has already told them, my people are going to spend 400 years, and they're going to be afflicted for 400 years, verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So as we study the book of of Exodus, Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14 are verses that you need to write in the margin somewhere or remember. God has said, yes, you will spend 400 years in Egypt, but I'm going to deliver you at the punishment of Egypt, and you're going to come out with great, great possessions. Verse 23 talks about those many days, and whether it's the 40 years that Moses has been away in the desert or the 400 years that they've been there, it's a long time that God's people have been here crying out. And note what happens. They cry out for rescue. They're 
from, from slavery, uh, their cry for rescue came up to God, and verse 24, and God heard their groaning, God remembered his covenant, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew, and note this, what God, God heard their prayer, God heard their cry, but what was, what was the immediate, immediate result of their cry and their cry for rescue, <clears throat> their groaning and their cry for rescue? What was the immediate result? What, what was happening right then and there as they're crying out in verse 23? In their experience, what were they experiencing? And you don't have to answer out loud. It's a little bit of a tricky question. Nothing. Yet. In, in their experience, they're crying out, they're groaning, and nothing's happening. And again, friends, we're going to make a lot of application toward the end here in a moment. But do you ever, I know you do. I know you feel this way. You're crying out. You're calling out. God, I don't have anybody else to go to. I don't, I don't know what else to do with this. And in your experience, you're aware, but it ain't working. Like, I've, I've come to you, and God, I've come to you for years. I've come to you for 40 years on this thing, and in my experience, nothing's happening. But from God's perspective, is nothing happening? Nope. Look in chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses. Moses, who had 40 years earlier disappeared off into the wilderness because he had killed a man, was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of whom? Yeah, God's on the move. Remember, some of you are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, some of my favorite books on the, uh, that exist. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver talk about Aslan is on the move. And the children, they don't even know why that makes them so excited, but it makes them excited. Friends, as Moses is walks, walking sheep through the desert, and as he comes to the mountain of God, that same kind of excitement should stir our hearts and stir our souls. He's just come to the mountain of God. This brings us to point number two. God appears to Moses. Verse three, we see Moses... Um, uh, well, we'll get to verse 3 in a second. But verses 1 and 2, Moses is, is taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. And I, it's hard. It, we have to be careful not to read too much into what's going on here. Because on one hand, you might think, well, what guy wants to work for his father-in-law? You know, I mean, come on, go, go, go do something with your life, man. You don't have to ride on your daddy's, you know, your father-in-law, especially your father-in-law. Who knows? Who knows exactly what's happening here? Maybe Moses was a very powerful and rich, and he actually owned all the sheep. We don't know. I want to be careful not to read too much in there. But it does make me think a little bit. Jethro does seem to be the priest of Midian, which would have been not the God of the Bible, not Yahweh. So here Moses is working for his father-in-law, taking care of sheep, living in, a, in an environment that would have been pagan, and the angel of the Lord comes to him in verse 3. Excuse me, verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Now, you need to know this. Some of you have heard the word theophany before. That's a big, fancy, theological Bible guy word. Theophany. You can write that down. T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-Y. Theophany. That's just a name for some type of visual representation of God in the Old Testament. A theophany, thea, theo, thea means God. Theophany is an appearance, some type of visual representation of God here in the Old 
Testament. The term theophany is normally used to refer to instance. This is a, uh, a theological definition. Usually refers to the instance, um, excuse me. The term theophany is normally used to refer to instances recorded in Scripture where God appears in some way to humans. You remember God is without form, right? Like he, he does not have a body. So if he appears to someone, he has taken on some type of physical appearance. And throughout the Throughout the Bible, and especially in the book of Exodus, the divine presence is frequently symbolized by fire. What goes before the people of Israel as they make their way into the wilderness? A pillar of? Yeah, a pillar of smoke, pillar of fire, right? Um, in the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit comes to the disciples waiting in the room, what, what hovers above their heads? Yeah, little flames of fire, right? Like so. So this is imagery that this is this theophany is frequently used, and there's, I'm skipping ahead of my notes here. There's dozens of times throughout the New Testament at Sinai when when the presence of God comes down on the mountain. He comes as what? He comes as fire. He accompanies his visit to Elijah with fire. When Ezekiel saw him as a shape, he saw him as a fiery shape. Daniel saw one sitting on a throne of fire. John saw one whose eyes were filled with fire. I could go on and on, okay? This, this imagery of fire is representing that, that the Holy One is here. God is revealing Himself to Moses in answer to the prayers of His people that are groaning and crying. God shows up here to Moses. In verses 4 through 6, let's look at these again. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses' reply was similar to Samuel's reply when Samuel heard, right, he thought it was um, Samuel calling for him, right? Am I remembering that right? Or was it, you know, Samuel thought Eli was calling him. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that's right. Samuel thought Eli was calling him, right? And, he, and then finally he realized, okay, you know, here I am. Friends, when God calls, it, let this be a lesson to us. When God calls, there's one right way to respond. Here I am. Open arms, ready, here I am. He comes to Moses. Moses says, here I am. He said, do not come near. Take your sandals off of your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so God comes to Moses and he tells him who he is. First, he tells Moses who he is. First, uh, let me say it this way. First, he tells Moses who Moses is, and then he tells Moses who he, who he is. Does that make sense? Moses, you're unclean. This is holy ground, bro. Take your shoes off. Like the fact that you're not incinerated is because I'm allowing you into my presence, but you're on holy ground. So God first tells Moses, Moses, here's who you are. And then God tells Moses, now here's who I am. I am the God of your father, Amram. We learned the name um, uh, from the New Testament. I'm, I'm your father's God. So he's reminding Moses, not of Jethro and that worldview, but of his, his parentage, his, his parents there. Uh, in Egypt, who had put him in the in the river in the little basket, in the little ark, he reminds Moses of who he is, and then reminds Moses of who he is. And Moses sees who he is, and he takes his his shoes off, and he falls on his face before before this God of of uh, of Amram and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 
Friends, when you when you look and see um, when you look at the list of names in verse six, I'm the God of your your father and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Here's something that needs to be incredibly encouraging to us. God isn't awesome because those men were awesome. In fact, when we think about those men, when we think about their lives, they were rascals. They lied. They were immoral. They cheated each other. They did all sorts of wicked, bad, no good things. We don't look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and go, we want to be Christians because those guys are so awesome and we should like model our lives after them. What what God is doing, even in reminding um, Moses that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is reminding Moses, look, I take, what's this, the phrase, I take broken sticks and draw straight lines, right? Like, I can, I can use anybody to accomplish my ways, and he's getting ready, this is coming next week, but he's getting ready to say Moses, tap Moses on the shoulder and say, I'm adding you to that line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now Moses. People... Brothers and sisters, when, when people see the glory of God, it changes them. And that's part of what's happening right here as Moses interacts with God. You see that he falls on his face and is afraid to look at him. In Isaiah, when, when Isaiah sees God holy and lifted up, what does he say? Woe is me. When Paul on the road to Damascus sees the risen Christ, he's blinded by him and realizes that he's a sinner and that he's doing wrong. When people come into contact with the one true God, they are, when they really come in contact with God, they're changed and they're changed forever. And so we're going to talk about it even more here in just a minute. But have you been changed? Have you come into contact with the one true God? Is your life changed by Christ? I don't mean are you kind of a nice person who goes to church on Sunday. Have you been fundamentally from the inside out changed by the good news of who Jesus Christ is? One of my favorite illustrations You've heard me use it many times. Um, Imagine that I showed up this morning to Sunday school five minutes late. Some of you already know where I'm going with this illustration, right? And I say, sorry, sorry I'm late. I was out by the road this morning, and and, uh, I dropped my Bible, and it went into the road, and I went out to get it. And as I went out to get it, one of the milk trucks came by at about 65 miles an hour and hit me. But, you know, I got over it, and now I'm back and, you know, ready to, like, you, you would go, no. Whatever might have happened, that's not what happened because you don't get hit by a milk truck and then come and teach Sunday school. Impossible. Doesn't happen. Because something as powerful and strong and significant as a milk truck going 65 miles an hour, when it, when it comes into contact with a human, it changes the human forever. God's more significant than a milk truck. And while it may not smash our bodies, it will smash us spiritually and recreate us. You don't come into contact with the glorious God of the universe and kind of live a ho-hum life in regards to him the rest of your life. If you've seen him for who he is, you say things like, woe is me, I'm undone, I can't see, I don't want, I'm, I'm, I'm taking my shoes off and I'm getting flat on my face. And there's a form of godliness that denies the power thereof in American Christianity. Well, we kind of take the parts of God that we want to add to our life, but we really don't want to be changed by him. When, he, when, when we see him for who he is, we cannot help but be changed. Thirdly, God announces his plan. 
God announces his plan. Look in verse 8. I love this. I love this. I love this. Verse 8. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. So we know, I'm getting in the next week's sermon a little bit, but we already know that he's going to ask Moses to help him. But what has God declared right here in verse 8? God has declared, I I have come down and I'm going to rescue. I'm going to do this thing. I am absolutely going to accomplish this. Imagine a multi-billionaire coming to you and saying, I have a business that I'm going to build here in Dalhart. You're like, okay, I mean, you got, you got billions of dollars. You can do it. And he says, I'm going to use you. Now I'm gonna, you're going to help me with it. You'd go like, well, okay, cool. Like you've you got, you got the ability, you've got the resources. You can do this thing. We're going to see next week how quickly Moses forgets what God says here in verse 8. I have come down. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand. Of, I've heard their cries in verses 23 through 29. In fact, look at verse 9. He reminds again. He said, well, look in verse 7. I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Look in verse 9. Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So, verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and broad place. And if you don't know the rest of the book of Exodus, here's a little spoiler alert. That's exactly what he does. It's exactly what he does. God comes down and he marches his people out of the land of Exodus, conquering essentially the Egyptians, taking treasure out of Egypt with them, and he brings them eventually into this good and broad land. He is literally there in the burning bush saying, I'm here to deliver and to bring them up. I've come down to bring them up, to bring them up to a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. I, I, love, I love that imagery. A good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. Now, we have the privilege of living in a very agricultural society. And almost, maybe, actually, everyone in here is directly or indirectly connected to land stuff around here. Farming, ranching, some kind of work that supports farming and ranching, teaching the children of parents who farm and ranch, right? I mean, we're, this is why we exist. And so when we talk about land around here, it gets people's attention. You, you think about land. But when we think about land around here, what, are the, what do we think about? Water. How many wells am I going to have to dig in order to, you know, pump? You guys use numbers and words that I don't even, still don't even understand, right? I need 150 things per minute or hour or something like that in order to irrigate this. And, you know, I don't know. I'm learning. I'm learning. We think about water, and then we think about weeds, right? How are we going to kill all these weeds? And there's a, some new hybrid variety, and I got Roundup Ready this, and I got this. And, but the crickets, you know, it wasn't the weeds. It was the crickets. So we've got water we worry about, we've got weeds we worry about. What's the third W that we worry about around here? Wind, right? Which is just blows all the time. I'm, I'm not getting used to it. I would say I'm getting used to it. I'm not getting used to it. We think about, we think about in, in here, 
God comes down to a group of people who are very much tied to the land. The, 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 everybody that was alive on, at the time, the Egyptians and the Israelites, would have been a very agricultural group of people. And so God says, look, I'm coming down, and I'm going to bring you up out of Egypt into a land. Listen, this is what the kind of land it's going to be. It's going to be a good land. You're going to have enough water. You're, gonna, you're not going to worry about weeds. You're not going to have to worry about wind. You, you, I'm going to bring you to a good land and a broad land. You're going to have lots of it. Right? Like, I don't own a square inch of land. And I'm, I, even I'm kind of like, man, it'd be nice to own land, especially ranch land that you could deer hunt on. Like, I'm in, right? So God is using language to them that's really appealing, a land, a good and broad land, and it's flowing with milk and honey. Treats. Tre- like, this isn't just like, you don't just get water and flour, Right? You can sustain life with water and flour, but milk and honey, man, now we're talking about dessert. The, the Old Testament word, this beautiful word called shalom, a place of peace and rest. And God is telling his people that I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to bring you into a land, a good and broad land, a land of peace and rest. And friends, we're going to watch, we're going to read as we progress through the book of Exodus, we're going to see that this is exactly what happens. And this happens as a precursor and as, a, as, a, as imagery. I mean, it literally does happen, but it's, it's happening in story form in a way that happens to every single person who cries and groans and calls out to God for help. Th- think about what we're seeing here. Remember how we started this morning, Luke chapter 24? And Jesus said, everything in the Old Testament is talking about me. Look in verse 8. And imagine Jesus saying this. I have come down. Where was Jesus and where did he go? He was in heaven. And where did he go? He He came down. To do what? I have come down to deliver. To deliver them out of what? Out of the hand of the Egyptians. Are we in slavery? Absolutely. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And what will God do after he delivers us out of our slavery? Isn't that awesome? And bring uh, them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. What we see here in the story of Israel is your story. Or what I hope is your story. Remember, let's have our Jesus glasses on here. We were groaning slaves. Romans chapter 6, verse 20, you were slaves of sin. Romans chapter 8, verse 22, all creation groans. So brothers and sisters, friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you wonder why your life is so full of groaning and crying out, it may be because you have yet to be delivered from the Egypt of your sins by the Deliverer. We're groaning slaves and we must cry out. Romans chapter 10, verse 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever cries out, the Egyptian or the Israelites are crying out. They're groaning out to God. Rescue us from the taskmasters, from our slave, from our slavery. 
Friends, those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you remember when you cried out to him, when you realized, my sin has separated me from you. The, my sin is the Egypt that I'm enslaved to, and I cannot deliver myself. Like the, Egypt, the Israelites couldn't deliver themselves from the power of Egypt. You and I cannot deliver ourselves from the power of sin. And so we cry out to the one who can. We must cry out. And if you've not cried out for deliverance from your sin, then cry out today and he will hear you. What happens in verses 24 and 25? He heard and remembered and saw and knew. And what did God remember? He remembered the promise that he had made to Abraham. And friends, if you will call out to him, if you say, I'm a sinner and I am calling out to you to rescue me, he will remember the promise that he has made to you through Christ. That those who will turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ will be saved. He will hear you and he will remember you. And not only... Not, not only d does he hear us and did he hear us, but just like God sent Moses to be the man who would, uh, through whom the plan for Israel's uh, rescue would come, God sends a man, Jesus Christ. But he's more than just a man. He is the God-man. God sends a man who will come and give himself to rescue us. He has a plan, and his plan is to deliver us from Egypt, from the Egypt of our sins, and to bring us up into a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And while we desperately want that here and now, there's coming a day where it will happen for us for all of eternity. The new heavens and the new earth, as we've talked about a number of times in here, the new heavens and new earth is that good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. He will rescue those who cry out to him for salvation. And he, he will deliver you to dwell with him. Remember the, the overarching theme of the entire book of Exodus we have said is that we are delivered to dwell. God, what he's doing with the Israelites is he's delivering them out of the land of Egypt so that he can dwell with them. He tabernacles with them. God dwells with them as they march through the wilderness to the promised land where they will dwell with him forever. So three Ds, or, or, or three, three stages. They're delivered from Egypt. God, God comes to them in the tabernacle and dwells with them as they are on their way to dwell with him forever. That's the story of Israel in, in Egypt. Delivered from Egypt, God dwells with them in the tabernacle on their way to dwell with him forever. Brothers and sisters, that's what God does for us when we call upon his name for salvation. He delivers us from Egypt. His Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us as we are on our way to the good and broad land of milk and honey. Does that make sense? That's the story of the Bible. That's why Jesus tells Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus, Put the Jesus goggles on and realize that all of this is pointing ahead toward me. The Old Testament tells about me. Friends, I hope my prayer, my, I don't know if it's obvious, I'm fired up this morning about this. Like my heart is burning within me about these things this morning. And I want that to be the same thing for each one of us. I want us to live like delivered slaves. I want us to be, live like people who have been impacted by the milk truck the semi-truck of, of, of the, the holy God himself. And we're going to, I'll probably end up using the milk truck a couple more times before we're through the book of Exodus. But friends, see here in verse 8. And man, again, write in your Bible, circle verse 8. Maybe write out, see the gospel in verse 8. Mark in here so that when you come back, um, uh, 
to, to this passage, you can see quickly. You can have your Jesus goggles on quickly. If you're here this morning and you still live in the Egypt of your sins, let me encourage you to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And if you have called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, but you still feel like you're crying out and you're groaning, remember that though it appeared to the people of Israel that initially while they're crying and groaning that nothing was happening, God had a plan that was working out and he was going to deliver them. Friends, remember that our faith is something that we anticipate. There is coming a day where God will finally and completely deliver us from this world and bring us into a good and broad land, heaven, a, a, land, a good and broad land that flows with milk and honey. I'll ask you to now bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you're here this morning, I'll ask the music team to come up because we'll close with a song. But if you're here this morning and you've never turned from your sin and put faith in Jesus Christ alone to save you, then let me encourage you. You can do that right there, right now in your seat. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to stand up. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to talk to anybody. You can simply pray something like this to God. Forgive me. God, forgive me of my sins. Deliver me from the slavery of my sins. I am trusting in you to be my deliverer, your son, Jesus. I want him to be my Lord and my Savior. And if you really mean that, God will rescue you from Egypt and he will change you from the inside out. And if you'd like to talk with someone about that today, me or someone else in here in this room, if you'd like to visit with one of us about this after the service, we will hang around here for quite a while after the service and would love to visit with you. For the, for the many in here who do know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me, let me encourage you to remember this promise you cry out to God, you groan out to God, and what does God promise that he does? He remembers. He remembers the promises that he's made to you. And while there may not be immediate answer today, he is working out a plan that will bring you into a land, a good and a broad land that flows with milk and honey. Father, we ask that you would use your word in our hearts powerfully this morning. May our hearts burn within us as we see the goodness of Jesus Christ to deliver those who will call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand, and we will end with a song of worship and adoration to Jesus Christ, and then Will will come and close our service in prayer. <laughs>